Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tim Kuhn is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. He served for more than three decades, including during the Iraq War. Coming up, he joins us in studio as we look at Iraq 15 years after the U.S. invasion. Are you an Iraq War veteran? Join our conversation. That's later. We'll also hear from an Iraqi who now lives in Connecticut. Ali al-Saadi once worked as a translator for the U.S. Army. And what hopes does he have for his native country? We'll ask him just ahead. Now, the 2003 Iraq War began on the false premise that Saddam Hussein was hiding and developing weapons of mass destruction. After his regime fell, Americans would become responsible for training a new Iraqi army, but new sectarian violence would make this anything but easy. Now, one of the people who worked with the American military was Emma Skye. In just a few minutes, we'll speak with Skye. She wrote a book about her experience, The Unraveling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. But first, Iraq recently held national elections, and the surprise winner is a coalition led by Shiite cleric Muqtadr al-Sadr. Al-Sadr is the Shiite leader whose militia once battled Americans and was responsible for sectarian violence. What does his influence mean for Iraq's future? You can join our conversation today, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live, at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now joining us now with some analysis is Iraqi British journalist Mina Al-Orebi. She's editor-in-chief of The National in Abu Dhabi. Uh, Mina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be on. I should also mention that Emma Skye is also in studio with us again, author of Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. Emma is senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale, where she teaches about Middle East politics. And Emma, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Um, I'll start with you, Mina. Uh, I had mentioned that Iraq held its national elections, and uh, the surprise winner is a coalition led by Muqtadr al-Sadr. For our listeners who don't know a lot about him, uh, tell us uh, who he is and why this was a surprise. There are many surprising things about Muqtadr al-Sadr. He is often called a maverick. Some people call him rogue. He comes from a very well-known family, a Sadr family that has religious significance, especially amongst Iraq's Shia population. Um, he is somebody that was against the 2003 war and the presence of American troops in Iraq, even though he was um, opposed to Saddam Hussein. His family have suffered from the regime of Iraq's former dictator. He has spoken about the need to battle corruption in Iraq, and that's what's made him most popular. In 2016, he and his supporters, he led his supporters um, in protests against the government, and they actually stormed parliament, and they stormed the secure uh, location where the government is known as the green zone for those who follow Iraqi politics. Um, what's really interesting about him in these elections is that he ran on an anti-corruption platform, and what he did was he went into alliances that were unexpected, including forming an alliance with the communists, the Communist Party of Iraq. 
Now, when we look at this uh, electoral process uh, in Iraq, um, there were lists that uh, voters uh, voted on, uh, and, and Assad's uh, list was uh, one of the the winners. So, explain to us a little bit about that process and how they then go about forming a new government. Yeah, the Iraq's parliamentary system is one that makes government formation and rule quite complicated, actually. It was a system that was um, imposed after the 2003 war. And so the idea is whoever holds the largest number of seats in parliament, and parliament is made up now of 329 seats, whoever has the largest number of seats can start trying to pull together an alliance for a majority to form the government. So because Iraq's politics is so fragmented, we have dozens and dozens of parties, no one can ever win a straightforward majority. So it's always a matter of you have a list, you can vote for the head of the list, and you can also choose MPs from within the list. And then they start to put together the number of votes. So it's a complicated mathematical procedure to actually see who in the end can form an alliance. And what's problematic about that is that you as a voter may be voting for Sadr, but you don't agree with the alliance that he may have to end up doing in order to form the majority that can form a government and choose its prime minister. Now, Sadr, I had mentioned also earlier, um, people may remember his name. I think uh, George W. Bush at one time considered him an enemy because he led some of the militias that American troops fought against. Um, how did he get to this position of now, um, uh, again, having this, uh, this winner of this coalition? And what does that mean for Iran's influence in Iraq, Mina? So Sadr used to lead a, a militia called the Mahdi Army, and many elements of the Mahdi Army uh, had carried out crimes in Iraq, uh, some sectarian killings, some uh, elements of kidnapping and otherwise. Uh, he, they were famously held responsible for the killing of a great man, Abdul Majid al-Hui, who was one of the most forward-thinking Shia clerics in Iraq, and it was the you know, Mahdi militia, to give you an example, who were held responsible for his death. And so how has Sadr, 15 years later, emerged as the great hope that many people believe to taking Iraq away from sectarian divisions and into more technocratic government? Well, that's happened over a series of years, and partly because he's actually always been a nationalist in the sense of he's always believed that Iraq should be strong, a sovereign country. He's been quite um, outspoken about America's influence in Iraq, but more so actually his position against Iran in recent years and saying that Iran's influence should not mean that Iraq no longer is an independent state and so forth. So the Iranians are quite uncomfortable about Sadr and he's been able to reach out also to Arab countries. He famously visited Saudi Arabia last year and he also visited the United Arab Emirates. And so the fact that he's been able to put out feelers and say, I am a Shia cleric, but I am an Arab almost, and I believe that Iraq's place is to have a good relationship with its Arab neighbors. That's won him a lot of support inside of Iraq and in the region. Uh, this is where we live. Uh, today we're looking at Iraq closely, uh, 15 years again since the U.S. invaded that country. Uh, the, the country recently, Iraq, uh, recently held uh, national elections, and we're learning a little bit about uh, the winner, uh, the coalition winner uh, in that election, uh, someone who uh, many of us remember from uh, news coverage uh, over uh, the years of the Iraq War, and that's uh, Shiite cleric Muqtadr al-Sadr. Also in studio with me is Emma Skye, uh, who worked with the U.S. military, advising uh, 
uh, generals. We're going to learn more about her experience in just a little bit. But Emma, when you looked at the elections that just happened earlier this month, uh, turnout wasn't as great as they've seen in the past. Yes, turnout was under 45 percent. And in previous elections, the turnout has been over 60 percent. So I think this is quite concerning because in a way it shows that Iraqis or many Iraqis are losing faith in the electoral process for bringing about change. And when we look at uh, the other uh, coalitions that were running, uh, there was also Iraq Prime Minister uh, Haider al-Abadi. This is someone that also garnered some votes. Uh, He's considered a secular nationalist. What can you tell us about him, Emma? Haider al-Abadi spent many years in Britain. He was an engineer working in the UK. And he became prime minister back in 2014 after ISIS had taken over a third of Iraq. And he was thought of as somebody who was a a compromise candidate, somebody who could get along with people a lot better than his predecessor, Nouriel Maliki. Now, Haider Abadi has been the prime minister who has led the country to rid Iraq of ISIS. And there was a sense that he was going to do much better in the elections. I mean, he only won 42 seats in comparison with Muqtada's 54 seats. And I think that is what surprised people because he was seen as the leader who pushed back on ISIS, who also pushed back on Kurdish expansionism in the north of Iraq, pushing the Kurds out of Kirkuk. And this seemed to be increasing his popularity with the Arab population. And he was expected to do much better in the elections than he did do. He's from the Dawa party and... His party ran on two separate lists. So Nouriel Maliki, his predecessor, took one list and came in with 26 seats. Abadi took the other half of the Dawa party and got 42 seats. Mm. Uh, Mina Al-Arabi, who is with us, I'm curious about um, any alliances that Sadr and Abadi uh, may form. And then what does that mean in terms of when we look at U.S. involvement in Iraq? Is this something that both of these men will continue to support. Abadi has been clear that he would support a continued presence um, of American troops on the ground as the fight against ISIS, while in some ways has been declared a success. It still continues in different parts of Iraq. But even Sadr has become more amenable to working with the United States, which is a big change compared to 2003-2004 years. Um, as for alliances, the talks are ongoing. Brett McGurk, who is the special U.S. presidential envoy uh, to counter ISIS, has actually been in Iraq for uh, several days, having meetings with different uh, partners. They have also been meeting with some of the Kurdish politicians. Uh, as Emma made reference to, Kurdistan politics has changed dramatically since a failed attempt last September from the Kurdish leaders to hold a referendum and after that, based on that, declare independence. They did have the referendum, uh, which had a yes vote. However, the Iraqi government responded quite harshly, as did the region and the international community, including the U.S., that did not allow them to go ahead with the declaration of independence. And that's led to a fragmentation of Kurdish politics where before 
the Kurds were kingmakers and would get enough of a block to be able to control a lot of the decision-making on government. Today, the Kurds are are divided, and therefore there isn't a clear Kurdish bloc that Abadi and Sadr are would have in the past probably had a, a deal with and formed a government. Rather, now they're speaking to different elements of the Kurds. There had been talk of them going into an alliance with Ammar al-Hakim, who is somebody who's greatly supported by Iran, but also has tried to stay clear of being seen as an Iranian puppet. Um, that hasn't been confirmed yet. Lots of discussions are ongoing and different hedging of bets, but until now it's unclear how the final decision will be made. One of the things that we see in Iraq is sometimes you get people discussing the possibility of having a majority government which often means a majority based on sectarian divisions. So having an Islamist Shia grouping come together and as though that can be representative of a majority. What these elections have shown is that voters were voting across sectarian lines and actually Abadi, one of the reasons he was successful, although he didn't do as well as people thought, he did very well in Mosul which is a predominantly Sunni uh, city, was because people, one, supported the fight against ISIS that he led, but also because one of his key um, candidates in his list is Khalid al-Baidi, who was a former defense minister in Iraq and somebody who Abadi worked closely with as opposed to somebody else who would represent uh, an Islamist Shia bloc. So, you know, if we we're, were to look at some trends and how the alliances are being made, there are hopes that we can break out of this purely sectarian divisions in terms of, of forming a government. Uh, you mentioned earlier, Mina, that uh, while um, ISIS, uh, uh, there was a success in driving them out of Mosul, they're not completely gone. And so I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners a little bit more about how U.S. forces are working with uh, Iraqi forces uh, to continue uh, to put um, you know, some strain on ISIS so that they don't return. There are several elements to that. I mean, one, the hunt continues for ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who remains at large, who most analysts expect to remain inside, expect remains inside of Iraq. We're still not sure. Um, in addition to that, the U.S. is playing a really important part in training and assisting. That's the name of the term, the train and assist mission, training and assisting Iraqi forces to be able to defend certain territories, but also working at getting them able to police civilian populations. One of the problems Iraq's had does not have a strong police force that can play the role of protecting ordinary citizens. And that will be the real bulwark against ISIS or some other militant grouping roaming the streets and controlling the streets of cities like Mosul. Uh, now, Emma Sky, I've seen some critiques uh, of, of people that um, have spoken out against some of the, the partnerships that the U.S. has formed with uh, these Iraqi forces, uh, some of them who previously received uh, financing, training, uh, and support from Iran. Uh, they worry that this is, quote, giving the fox the keys to the hen house, so to speak. I mean, how do you, what is your response to that critique? It's obviously difficult because there's an array of different forces inside Iraq. You've got the Iraqi security forces, the Iraqi army, but then you've got the Kurdish Peshmerga, and there are different 
Shia militias that have become integrated within the Iraqi army. Now, some are integrated and some are separate from. So you don't have a situation yet where the state forces have the monopoly on the use of violence. And the U.S. has been working to build up the capacity of the Iraqi army and particular elements within the Iraqi army, such as the counterterrorism force. And it's the counterterrorism force that has been very effective in the fight against ISIS. We saw them in Mosul, and we've seen them across the Iraqi territories. So that has worked very well. I mean, I, I know you'll be having to go in just a few minutes, but I did want to ask you about um, the future of Iraq as we uh, look again uh, 15 years since the Iraq war uh, began. Uh, again, we're hearing more about how uh, there's U- less U.S. involvement uh, now, hoping to pull out uh, some of the 5,000 uh, service members that have been there helping to train Iraqi forces. At the same time, you have this uh, nationalist uh, mentality moving forward um, uh, by people like Muqtadr al-Sadr, uh, this idea of uh, the outsiders caused a lot of problems in our country. It's now our uh, time uh, to uh, strengthen um, from within and lead the country forward despite um, all of the consequences of war. I mean, what is your take on what needs to happen as someone who is originally from Iraq? It's a long list. I don't think the program's long enough, but at its heart, there are uh, important domestic uh, imperatives. One is is to root out corruption. Uh, some people think that when we talk about corruption, it's just in terms of the, the moral imperative not to have uh, corruption, etc. But the reality is corruption has led to a lot of the militant uh, activity on the ground, has led to terrorism and so forth. And if this next government that's formed is unable to curb corruption, I mean, they won't be able to root it out in, in, instantly because it's become so endemic, then most people will see that this government would have failed like previous governments have failed. So the issue of corruption comes, number one. Number two, an issue that Emma alluded to, which is the issue of the state having monopoly over the use of arms. Arms have proliferated throughout the country. There are different militant groups, and they're not going to give up their arms easily. And that's one of the things we can say this needs to happen, this needs to happen. But there are such vested interests in the country today, and they will fight tooth and nail to keep those interests and the power that they've been able to accumulate over the last few years. Another element, of course, that's important is genuine social reconstruction, cohesion, after not only the damage from ISIS, but also sectarian strife and conflict and a feeling that a citizen alone is not represented they must show that they belong to this grouping or try to have their MP support them based on their sect. Then you have the wider picture of the U.S. When, when Iraqis say that the U.S. needs to keep, their, you know, keep troops inside of Iraq, it's important, of course, the role that they play militarily. But even more important is that America remains engaged in Iraq. And what we've seen is that when the U.S. is pulling out troops, it starts to become disengaged politically, and that allows for a greater role for Iran. And it also allows for a vacuum there that Iraqis are not yet sure um, gets filled what, by what regional or world power. And the U.S. having invested so much in Iraq and also the Iraq finding that there are reasons to remain close to Washington, hope that the troop presence continues for that particular reason, the political engagement that comes with having troop presence. 
Mina Al-Arabi is editor-in-chief of The National in Abu Dhabi, also a British-Iraqi journalist. Uh, Mina, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Emma Sky will stay with us as we continue talking about Iraq's future. Now, did you serve in the Iraq War? What did you think of Iraq's recent national elections and where the country stands today? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the Iraq War, 15 years after the U.S. invaded the country. Now, coming up, we'll hear perspective from Connecticut residents who served in the war. Now, not everyone who worked with the U.S. and its allies were service members. Emma Skye was an Arabist, an expert on Arabic politics, language, and culture. She, like many at the time, saw the war as a mistake, but she decided to go to Iraq anyway to try to help the Iraqis. She would end up working with the U.S. military, and just months after the war started, she found herself assigned to lead the oil-rich province of Kirkuk. She wrote about her experience in the book, Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. Uh, later, she served as advisor to Ray Odierno, the commanding general of the U.S. forces in Iraq from 2007 to 2010. Now, Sky is currently a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale, director of the Greenberg World Fellows Program at Yale, and she's in studio with us today. You can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, uh, before we continue talking with uh, Emma, I just wanted to ask you, do you remember this guy? We know that Saddam Hussein pursued weapons of mass murder even when inspectors were in his country. Are we to assume that he stopped when they left? The history, the logic, and the facts lead to one conclusion. Saddam Hussein's regime is a grave and gathering danger. That was then President George W. Bush speaking to the U.N. General Assembly in September of 2002. Now, Emma, is it fair to say the history, logic, and the facts lead to one conclusion, that the U.S. made a big mistake? That's how it looks today. I think that's indisputable. And I think you can only understand how on earth we invaded Iraq in the context of 9-11. If it wasn't for 9-11, there wouldn't have been that fear that there could be another attack on the homeland. And it has to be understood in, in that context. So President Bush sitting there, he's already failed to prevent one attack, and now he's fearful of attack from another direction. Now, having said that, there were people, neoconservatives in his administration, who had Iraq on their radar for, you know, 10 years before that. And they'd always been looking for some reason to do something about Iraq. They were the ones who said that, you know, Saddam Hussein is a threat not only to his people, but to the region. If Saddam is overthrown, then the region will become democratic. That will have a domino effect across the whole of the Middle East. It will all become democratic and will make peace with Israel. So the architects, you know, of the Iraq war absolutely believed that that war would transform the country and the region, which it certainly did, but not ever in ways in which they envisaged. Uh, one of the uh, consequences, uh, besides uh, uh, 44, more than 4,000 uh, U.S. service members killed, tens of thousands of Iraqis killed, we also saw the emergence of ISIS and the region uh, becoming very unstable. That wouldn't have happened without the beginning of this war. 
It's true. There would have been no al-Qaeda in Iraq if it wasn't for the Iraq war, because it was in the ungoverned spaces, the collapse of the Iraqi state, that allowed Abu, um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi to set up al-Qaeda in Iraq. And it was al-Qaeda in Iraq that later morphed into the Islamic State. We don't know the exact numbers of Iraqis that have been killed in the war, but it's probably closer to a million. Now, I mentioned that you went to Iraq right after the invasion, despite being opposed to it. Uh, Why did you go? And uh, tell us about some of the work that you did there. Well, I mean, I was one of those people who was very much against the war. But after the decision was taken, I wanted to go out to Iraq and help Iraqis rebuild their country. So in those days, back in 2003, there was a belief, certainly in the UK, that we were only going to be there for three months. So I was hired on a three-month contract. And before I left the UK, I didn't know what my job was going to be. I was just told, you know, find your way to Basra. Once you get to Basra, it will all become clear. Well, I found my way to Basra, and it certainly wasn't clear on arrival. So I went up to Baghdad, and they said, we've got enough people here. Try the north. So I ended up going to Kukuk, and when I got to Kukuk, I was told... I was now the senior civilian responsible for administering the province and reporting directly to Ambassador Bremer, who was the overall in person in charge of the coalition. Mm-hmm. And I'd never been a mayor you know, of a town in my own country, let alone the governor of a province in someone else's country. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Paul Bremer. Again, he led the coalition provisional authority. Um, some of the decisions he made caused a lot of the uh, instability and the uh, outside influence, the sectarian violence to begin in Iraq. Can you talk about that? So on his first day, on on arrival in Iraq, he made two important decisions. One was to debathify the country, so to remove the senior civil servants who were members of the Ba'ath Party. And the other one was to dissolve the security forces. And those two decisions had the impact of actually collapsing the state. Because to be a doctor in Iraq or to be a teacher in Iraq, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. So we left hospitals without doctors. We had schools without teachers. And so the professionals were left humiliated and angry. The military, we dropped flyers across Iraq before invading, telling them to, you know, don't fight and will treat you with honor and respect. And most Iraqis weren't prepared to fight for Saddam. They hated Saddam, so they went home. But instead of recalling them to barracks, we dismissed them, and they were humiliated, and they were angry. Ambassador Bremer gets blamed for these two decisions, but I don't think he just thought them up on his own on the plane coming in. I think this was discussed beforehand in Washington. Debathification was based on denazification, There was a lot of support from Iraqi exiles who were advising the U.S. that this was the way to go. Um, When we uh, look, like you said, uh, there are uh, many missteps, and you allude to that in your book, uh, unraveling high hopes and missed opportunities in Iraq. Um, From Kirkuk, uh, you then went on to advise uh, General Ray Odierno. Uh, So what were some of the 
after the U.S. invaded, and there were uh, definitely uh, challenges uh, after, like you said, um, the military was dissolved there. Uh, people um, were left really with nothing. They had to, to start over with uh, this uh, foreign entity uh, in their country. What were some of the other um, mistakes made before you started to see a tide turn in a way where things started to look like maybe Iraq could emerge from this? So those mistakes or the decisions made early on, sort of in May 2003, created a reaction. So with the collapse of the state, Iraqis were nervous, they were fearful, and they formed gangs to protect themselves. Those we dismissed from the jobs became, you know, furious with us, and they became insurgents against the new order that we were installing. And because there was nobody to guard Iraq's borders, it meant that any jihadi from anywhere could come into Iraq to fight the infidel. So you started to see all of these different insurgencies, which then led to a full-blown civil war. Because al-Qaeda in Iraq was trying to collapse the state, and it thought the only way to really collapse the state totally was to do these attacks against Shia in order to create that backlash. And after attack against attack against attack, including the blowing up of the Samara Mosque, the, the Shia retaliated en masse. And because there was no state, there was nothing to stop this from happening. So you saw by the end of 2006 that Iraq really was on the abyss. Every morning in Baghdad, there'd be dead bodies on the streets. And you could tell whether they were Sunni or Shia by the way in which they'd been killed. Was it a drill through the head or a bullet? They said that the fish tasted different. They stopped eating fish. Said the fish had been eating all the bodies in the river and it, it tasted differently. So it was a horrible, horrible time. This is where we live. Uh, today we're looking at Iraq 15 years after after the start of the uh, Iraq War. Uh, in studio with me is Emma Skye, author of Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. Uh, now she's a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale. You can join our conversation. Uh, did you serve in Iraq? Uh, do you have uh, 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 comments about uh, our legacy uh, in that region? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Mike's calling from Brookfield. Mike, you're on the show. Uh, hi, Lucy. Uh, it's Mike. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. So this is Mike Zakea, who we've interviewed in the past, uh, uh, and you uh, are a retired uh, lieutenant colonel from the, the U.S. Marine Corps and one of uh, the first uh, military advisors uh, uh, in Iraq. You were helping train uh, some of these Iraqi uh, forces. Uh, what did you want to mention in terms of what our legacy is? Uh, you know, I think that <clears throat> we're getting... Funny, I've been talking about the 15th anniversary of the invasion, uh, you know, this spring. Uh, you know, I, I think that we have not yet figured out what this long a war means. Um, I think if you start unraveling it, unpacking it, um, you know, it's, uh, it's several pieces to this. Uh, n number one, um, I think Americans are going to have a tough time believing in a cause to go to war going forward because of the cause for going to war in this case was um, so uh, contrived. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that we made tremendous, tremendous mistakes on the ground. Um, even irrespective of whether we should have invaded or not, 
it was just bungled uh, from the very beginning. Um, you know, when I, uh, if you ever read some of these books, um, we had almost no Arabic interpreters on the ground there. When I got there and, mm-hmm. you know, I was building the first Iraqi army battalion, I had to hire interpreters off the street. So we really didn't know. It's really a failed mission, build, uh, a nation-building mission, um, which I think will should cause skepticism um, among both politicians and policymakers and the American public going forward for generations. Well, um, well Mike, thank you for your call. Uh, again, Mike Zakea uh, from Brookfield, Connecticut. Emma, uh, and you can join our conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Emma, do you want to respond with what Mike uh, was telling us? I think, you know, a number of points. Yes, you know, we, we shouldn't have invaded Iraq. It was based on the premise that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which it didn't have. But as Mike was saying, there was nothing that happened in Iraq after 2003 that was inevitable. Iraq could have had better futures. And there really was hopes of a world without Saddam Hussein's and missed opportunities because of our mistakes to create that better order. But he also brings up the interesting point of, you know, we're able to do these wars because we have an all-volunteer force. We have now been at war for 15 years in Iraq. It's longer in Afghanistan. And we seem to be in a situation where we are forever at war and never winning. And it doesn't really affect most Americans. It affects those who serve, who go there year after year after year and risk their lives and their limbs. And it doesn't affect the rest of America. Taxes aren't raised. People go about their everyday lives and it makes no difference to them what is happening overseas. Well, it matters a lot to those people overseas. When you look at our response to 9-11, we have gone into two wars and an outcome, unintended consequences of this have been a proliferation in the number of jihadis, have been the deaths of, we don't know how many people, but hundreds of thousands of people. So are we sowing the seeds of more violence and more anger for generations to come? Or are we actually one day going to be able to bring these wars to an end? I worry that our whole economy now has become based about around us being forever at war. People benefit from it. But it's certainly when you look at our servicemen and women who serve year after year after year out there, I think they deserve better strategic leadership from our civilian masters that explains what we're doing, how this will end, and what we can achieve. Um, one of the, I guess, uh, unintended consequences of uh, the Iraq War is again the instability of that region, and looking at what has happened in Syria, and our our hesitation uh, to really, um, you know, deal with Bashar al-Assad uh, from Obama and uh, now uh, Trump with these uh, selected uh, airstrikes. I mean, what do they really do to a man who has perpetuated atrocities on his people? It's You know, I think you're right. Because of what happened in Iraq, we've become very nervous about what can be done. But I think when you look at Iraq, it's really also important to look at that period, 2007 to 2009, that period that we call the surge, which was the only time in the whole war that we actually had the right leadership 
the right strategy and the right resources. And the violence came way down. And Iraqis came into the political process and they all believed that their country was headed in the right direction. But we've taken the wrong lessons from Iraq. And when it came to Syria, we have stood by while Bashar al-Assad has mass murdered his people and displaced half the population of the country. And it doesn't end there because the region, the neighboring countries are having to cope with all these displaced people. We have had hundreds of thousands cross the sea, cross the Mediterranean on those little dinghies trying to get to Europe. It's had a huge impact on the European Union. It's influenced the decision by the UK to vote to exit the EU, the Brexit vote. So it's having these consequences. What happens there is not contained in the region, has consequences that go far beyond the region. Uh, this is where we live. Again, in me, with me in studio is Emma Sky, author of Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq, senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale as we look at Iraq uh, 15 years uh, since the, the war began. Um, we did ask uh, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy to join us uh, because he sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he was unable to this hour, but he did give us a statement, um, part of that. Uh, There's no way to overstate the disastrous consequences of the U.S. decisions to invade Iraq. It set in a motion of series of events that gave rise to ISIS, and it ruined American credibility in the region. Uh, he writes, the challenge now is to learn from this hubris that led to the invasion and recognize the U.S. cannot change the political realities of the Middle East. What's your response to what uh, Senator Murphy is saying there? You know, when you look at, by 2009, al-Qaeda in Iraq had been defeated. Mm-hmm. Iraq was headed in the right direction. And the Iraqis were confident that the country was going in the right direction, so were we. And then Iraqis went into the elections in 2010. And the turnout was really high. It was about 62%. And a coalition came together that campaigned on a platform of no to sectarianism, Iraq for all Iraqis, and went on to win the most seats. It won 91 seats. This was the Iraqia bloc, won 91 seats. And the incumbent prime minister, Noriel Maliki, refused to believe the election results. And the Obama administration was, you know, had to make a decision about what to do. And General Odierno, my boss, was urging that the U.S. should uphold the electoral results, uphold the right of the winning bloc to have first go at trying to form the government, consistent with Iraq's constitution. But in the end... The Vice President Joe Biden, the Vice President at the time, who was Obama's point man on Iraq, took the decision that we would support Nouriel Maliki, even though he hadn't won the most seats, and threw the full weight behind Nouriel Maliki. And, you know, that ignored the election results. That caused terrible problems in Iraq. It allowed Iran to gain more influence. And Nouriel Maliki securing his seat for his second term went after the Sunni politicians, accused them of terrorism. He reneged on his promises to the tribal leaders, the awakening, the Sunni awakening leaders, who had helped us in defeating al-Qaeda. And this created the conditions for the Islamic State, for ISIS, to rise up out of the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq and proclaim itself the defender of the Sunnis against the Iranian-supported sectarian regime of Nouri al-Maliki. So it wasn't inevitable that ISIS should come along, And you could argue that al-Qaeda in Iraq 
was created due to the mistakes of the Bush administration. But ISIS came out of the mistakes of the Obama administration. So, you know, both political parties in the U.S. have their share of blame, but they keep blaming each other rather than trying to look at what went wrong, what can we learn for the future, and how can we ensure that we don't deploy our troops without a sense of what is the political outcome that we're trying to achieve. Uh, we've unfortunately ran out of time, but I want to thank Emma Skye, author of Unraveling High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq, uh, for joining us. Uh, Emma, thanks so much for your perspective. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, more than one and a half million Americans served in Iraq. We're going to talk to a Connecticut veteran and an Iraqi refugee who now lives in the state. Our conversation right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, federal VA data finds nearly 19,000 Connecticut veterans served in the post-9-11 era. That takes into account both the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Uh, Tim Kuhn served in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2006. He joins me now in studio. Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. Glad to be here. Also, Ali al-Sadi served with the U.S. Army in Iraq. He served as a, a translator for the Army. He's joining us by phone. Ali, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So I wanted to just uh, ask uh, Tim first, uh, you know, what are some of your memories of the time that you served in Iraq? Well, they range from hilarity to tragedy uh, and everything in between. Um, probably the, the the strongest memories I have are the, the men that uh, I got a chance to serve with, both the Iraqis and the Americans, um, because as I, w I was assigned to a military training team, so I lived outside the wire with uh, 10 other Americans uh, and uh, trained Iraqi, uh, an Iraqi rifle battalion. So I had the opportunity to meet quite a few uh, Iraqi soldiers and then have remained friends with quite a few of them over since the last uh, 10 years mm -hmm. or so. Uh, you were there uh, for one year in Bakuba, Iraq? Right, Bakuba. Right? Yeah, Bakuba. Uh, when uh, we look at, at the legacy of the war today, um, what are your thoughts uh, when we, again, uh, reflect back on the justifications given by U.S. officials at the time uh, to start this war, when we see the consequences today? Well, um, definitely have two minds on, on, that, uh, on that question. Uh, obviously, as a soldier, uh, I had the duty to perform uh, the mission to uh, my best possible ability. And I'm confident that myself and my uh, my brother officers and NCOs uh, did that. But I will admit to being in a bunker in Iceland in 2000, March 2003 when the war kicked off and turned to, uh, I was a major at the time, turned to a couple of colonels and said we had just committed the biggest mistake in U.S. history. Uh, so there was definitely, uh, uh, I felt that way since the beginning. Uh, 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 your earlier guest, uh, Emma, in talking about the uh, installation of democracy. I happened to see uh, be shown a video that was shown at the Pentagon to justify uh, the video was those individuals talking about spreading of democracy, tipping points, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, saw that justification for the war. Um, I will say that uh, the men and women in the U.S. armed forces that served there uh, worked very hard and believed very strongly in their mission. Uh, but I'll be honest, uh, some of the direction we got <laughs> regarding what our mission was uh, could be a little confusing at the time. Uh, that is for sure. 
I mentioned Ollie's on the phone with us. Ollie, uh, you were born and raised in Iraq. Uh, tell us what life was like there uh, before the invasion in 2003. Um, yeah, Emma. Uh, Lucia, you know, I was born in Baghdad. Um, you know, I was raised and born over there. Um, life was, you know, was normal. Everyone used to go to schools, go to their jobs, you know, like it was a normal life. It wasn't, and above all, we were safe. It wasn't like any killing, it wasn't any bombing, it wasn't any, you know, abduction, nothing. So that's why it's like, that's before the invasion, but after the invasion, you know, everything's like turned, turned back as like on the people. And, uh, you know, a lot of people fell victim for the worse. And a lot of families now, they either, you know, some wives, they are either widows or some people lost their loved ones, you know. Mm. And I'm one of them. I lost my brother and sister during the war. But if we didn't have the war, never that would never happen to us. I'm sorry to hear that you lost your, your siblings. Uh, you went on to then work for the U.S. Army as a translator. Uh, what was that experience like? Um, so when when I decided to be an interpreter, I decided, you know, to help both sides. I decided to help the U.S. US Army, and I decided to help my people as well, you know, to have a better communication and a better understanding. But, you know, my people, they did not believe like we are working to help them they were they were like believing we are like spies like we are like you know giving information and you know leaking information to to the united states army so they they did not believe we were like working for them to have a better understanding and better communication for them so because of your work with the u.s army you then became became a target you had to leave Yes, exactly. It's like I got threatened like six times mm. and since I was working. And I was working as an interpreter since 2003 till 2006. So I've been working as an interpreter for three years. And I got threatened like six times. And the last time, you know, it was like I almost got shot because of that. And that's when I decided to quit and come to the United States. Mm. Uh, you were able to move here um, uh, as a, a refugee. What was that like to leave uh, your homeland? And uh, do you hope to return there one day, Ali? Yes, I want to return, to be honest with you. I already have, you know, a future back home. I used to be a, I used to be a Navy officer. And, you know, I, I had, you know, I have my family. I have my friends. And it is my home country, and I had future, but you know, you cannot live over there. I couldn't live over there because if I lived over there, I know I will be killed. So that's why I decided to come over here for the sake of my wife and my kids. Um, our in-studio guest, Tim Kuhn, un un understands that um, the uh, contributions uh, of translators and interpreters for the military, you helped uh, bring uh, one of your translators uh, to Connecticut. Uh, Tim, we only have a couple of minutes, no but problem. Falah was uh, your friend, and, and you helped bring him here. That's correct. Uh, Falah was uh, principally our principal interpreter uh, for our MIT team. And uh, during my time in Iraq, the uh, Congress in initiated the um, special uh, interpreter visa program. 
and I was able to assist Falah and uh, uh, getting his visa and for his his visa to come to the U.S. along with his wife and five boys. Uh, and um, in 2009, uh, <laughs> years run together because they've been in, they've integrated into the Glastonbury community very well. Uh, they came to uh, Glastonbury, and I was able to get them settled through help from the the community of Glastonbury itself. Uh, get them settled in the town. Uh, they bought a house in town. Uh, Falah has a good job working uh, for an American corporation. I uh, swore his oldest son into the Connecticut National Guard. His uh, next oldest son is working on his PhD. Uh, so they've settled themselves into the community. But uh, Falah's story was very similar to Ali's story as well. Uh, his family had been threatened, uh, and actually they firebombed his apartment with his family in it. Uh, decapitated a friend of his uh, that was also working as an interpreter, and that was that was pretty standard for the uh, uh, the interpreters uh, during that time frame. Uh, it was um, it was a unfortunately regular occurrence, and Falawa's got his con- his family out of the country, uh, and then was able to get them into the United States. Um, Ali, uh, we just have uh, under a minute, but I did want to ask you, we started the hour talking about uh, uh, the current uh, political uh, climate uh, and the recent elections in Iraq. Um, Are you optimistic about your country's uh, future? To be honest with you, yes, I am. But I I just hope, you know, one day it will be so everything will be settled down and we will go back to normal. And, you know, it's like I wish all the good for my people, you know. I don't want to see my people suffering because, you know, because of the government and the power. And even though, Ali, uh, you worked with uh, the U.S. Uh, military, your experience uh, here in this country has not all been positive. Uh, how do you uh, get past some of the discrimination you faced? Um, to be honest with you, it's like I always, I always let it go. I don't want to even think about it. It's like since that moment, you know, still some people, you know, it's like they are racist with me because I'm from Iraq. Mm. But I always let it go. I don't want to let it, you know, up to my head because, you know, it's not worth it. It's like, it's not worth it at mm. all. Ali Al-Saudi, again, a Connecticut resident, uh, an Iraqi refugee, former translator for the U.S. Army, now living in Connecticut. Ali, thank you for coming or talking with us today. Thank you very much. Also, Tim Kuhn, a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve uh, and uh, also deployed to Iraq. We thank you, Tim. Thank you very much, Lucy. This is where we live.